Well, um, thank you for being here tonight. I appreciate you coming so I don't have to speak to an empty room. <laughs> I, um, I'm looking forward to hearing Chris speak. He's got a lot to say. He's got a great heart. We, uh, last month I introduced you to the subject of um, the nature of God. We were just talking about what God's like, and I promised you that we would continue that study tonight. Um, looking at the life of Jesus and uh, for maybe some answers about who God is and what he said and demonstrated in his life that might give us some clues. So my message tonight is part two of that series. and I've entitled it like Father, like Son, didn't we, Paula? We came up with that. <laughs> my message last month began with the words of an author and writer by the name of uh, Graham Cook. And he was quoted as saying, what you think about God is the most important thought you will ever have. And that's pretty lofty, isn't it? The most important thought you'll ever have is about how you see God. And I think he, he explained that further along in another place I saw. Uh, I just wrote it down. He says, our image of God will drive every single part of life and declare how we show up in the world how we show up in the world. So the way we present ourselves and the, the way, the manner we move through life is directly influenced by the way we see God. Let me see if I can prove that to you, okay? Because we have some unbelievers here in the group. <laughs> by that I mean we, we've not all experienced God in, a, in the way that Jesus did. And we want to. That's the standard of Christianity is his life. And so we hunger for that, and we, we press into that, and that's what we're doing tonight. We're just examining the life of Jesus, finding out how we can become more like him. In preparing tonight's message, I took a poll from my men's group. We went around and did a Q&A, and, and I promised them I wouldn't divulge any private things, but in general, I can give you a, a survey. of. Um, we talked about this because I asked the men. Uh, they, they weren't prepared, and so I just asked them off the QT. I said, um, when you um, um, think about God, how do you see God today? How do you view him? How does he seem to you? And so we just gave them a little time to think about that, and, and we had a, a really good discussion I read this, um, um, in fact, this was something I wrote myself. I believe this was, a, was from my notes in my journals. It says, when you give voice to your thoughts, sometimes you hear them for the first time. And what that means is it's good for us to ask each other good questions and have dialogue because sometimes the things that come out of us are the things we don't recognize and they are um, the, the beliefs that we have that we need to re-examine. Sometimes they clarify things that we believed and they reinforce those. And so I asked these guys, how do you see God? The overwhelming response was that they saw him through the eyes of their relationship with their natural fathers. No surprises there, right? Um, Nearly to a man, they said they had entered into this relationship with God um, with expectations that somehow God was like their earthly father. Now, that's, that's a difficult journey right there for some of us, isn't it? Because it, that's fraught with all kinds of negative things sometimes. I knew a really good father once. <laughs> but most of my life, I've seen men like us, 
who uh, were just trying to get through life and not hurt very many people. So as I questioned them further, it became clear over the past year that the image that they had of God maybe even a year ago had changed dramatically to this present moment. Most of the men said they didn't see God the way they did a year ago. And so when we talked about it, the next question I had was, well, how did you get from there to here? What was that process like for you? And, see, and by the way, most of them seen, were seeing him more positively. And I was asking them, how did you arrive there? And through uh, just some discussion, we, we determined that it was a couple of different things. Number one, their interaction with God has helped them tremendously. They weren't expecting God to be so personally involved in their lives. And he helped them in their moment of difficulty and showed himself to be good, which was a good clue for most guys. And at the same time, they learned secondarily through groups like our own that other people have stories to tell about God. And the power of testimony is a powerful force in understanding what God is like. When I hear other men talk about their experiences with God, it gives me faith to believe that God's that way with people just like all of us. That we're all about the same. And so these, this processing with God through these difficult times of life and being in groups where people were um, giving feedback that was very positive had caused um, these men to rethink their old perceptions. So really, in essence, their beliefs were changing as they were challenged by the truth. Isn't that the way we always change? We don't generally change our thinking just by more information. It has to be processed through life, and there's a certain risk involved, and there's a certain faith that's involved. So my purpose tonight in teaching is to, I thought about this, what am I, what am I wanting to accomplish here? What I think in my own language is this. I want to create an awareness of a new reality. I want you to see the possibility that God is something different than maybe you imagined him to be. And sometimes just entertaining that thought causes us to take a new plateau of understanding. Um, for some of you, I'm going to present some information that uh, you may already know. For others, uh, you may not have a clue. This may be new for you on your journey. That's okay. It's pretty simple, and I'll keep it that way. So I'll ask this question that will take us in our study tonight. What is the true nature of God. And I'll start off with a quote from Bill Johnson because I so much respect this man. He's got such incredible wisdom. But he made this statement. There is a deep personal need in the body of Christ to see Jesus for who he is. Jesus Christ is perfect in every way. He is perfect beauty, perfect majesty, perfect power, and perfect humility. And then he closes with this line, and I'm going to take off from here. He says, he is also perfect theology. And you remember last month we defined theology as being the study of the nature of God. If Jesus is a perfect revelation of God, then I want to know about that. I want to understand that in a way that I believe it with all my heart. Don't you? So um, Bill finished with saying, he is the will of God personified. In other words, the will of God is being played out on the theater of life by a man in the flesh and to perfection. So I wonder, do you think the Bible supports that statement? Do you think that the scripture 
would, would be evidence to prove what Bill is, is saying there in his claim. Is Jesus a perfect representation of the nature of God? And I love Jesus' question to his followers. It's the same question he asked me about two or three months ago. He says, well, who do you say that I am? Because it's important that you come to grips with how you see him so that if that has some things that need to be corrected, that he can begin a dialogue with you to make those adjustments. And he'll call you the way he always does by saying, come up here. There's a better view here next to me. You'll see this more clearly as you're with me in this relationship. So let me read from the Bible and see a good place to start, I think, is always at the beginning. Don't you think? That's supposed to be funny. Anyway, John 1.1 1, 1 starts off with that very language. And it says, in the beginning, then in parentheses, the amplified, it says before time, before all time, was the Word. And then it says in parentheses, in case you don't know who the Word is, it says Christ. And it says that later about, maybe not even a chapter later, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God Himself. So what does that tell us about this Word of God? He is, in fact, God Himself. He has been with God before time. He was present before that. He was part of the creation, and He plays a pivotal role in the unfolding of the history of man. The Apostle Paul is of the same opinion, by the way. When he said in Philippians, Jesus became completely human, but was without sin, being fully God and fully man. So there's another story right line right there that says Jesus was not just a man. He was fully man, but he was still fully God. He was God himself in the flesh. And in Colossians 1.15, he says, now this Jesus, now this is, a, this is pretty wordy, but I'll, let me see if I can get it out. He is the exact likeness of the unseen God, parentheses, the visible representation of the invisible. He is the firstborn of all creation. So there's plenty of claims in the Bible. Thus far, we've just seen some of the most prominent ones about this person, Jesus, being of the same essence as God. I've heard people say that Jesus never claimed to be the Christ or even God. But they obviously hadn't read the Bible looking for that answer because uh, Scripture proves that to be untrue. In fact, we read his words in John 10, and we find that he was uh, pretty straightforward about who he was when he said, I and the Father are one. <laughs> it's pretty clear. We are, we are one. And he didn't mean that we're one and he's one. He says we are the same essence. Everything about him I, I have Everything about me, he has. We are entwined in the Spirit. In case you think that's no big deal, and that's just a casual statement, I want you to see the response of the Jewish leaders when he said that. Because immediately they picked up stones to kill him. And he said, for what sin are you about to stone me? Because you've seen me in my ministry every day in the temple, and you never stoned me then, so what is the charge you're bringing against me? And they said to him, we're not going to stone you for a good act, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, make yourself out to be God. They understood in the culture what he was saying. He was saying, God and I are one. I am 
God in the flesh. And that was blasphemy to them. They were about to murder him. So their response made it evident that there was something significant said there. I'm just laying the groundwork for you. With me so far? All right. Here's a familiar verse, and, and I'm sure all of you have heard this. This is out of John 14. And, uh, it starts like this. Jesus explained, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through a union with me. It's pretty clear. It's in big red letters. To know me is to know my Father too. And get this. And from now on, you will realize you have seen him and experienced him. In other words, he's saying from now on, I'm walking with you. I want you to know you've seen and experienced the Father. We're building a case here. Fortunately for us, Philip was there to ask a stupid question, just like most of the time it was Peter. This, this time it was Philip. And so Peter's, uh, Philip says to the Lord, he says, Lord, show us the Father. And that will be all that we need. And Jesus looks at him and just shakes his head. He says, Philip, I've been with you all this time, and you still don't know who I am. How could you ask me to show you the Father? It was ludicrous to him. How could you ask me to show you the Father? For anyone who has looked at me has seen the Father. Is that enough scripture to, to build my case here? Because I, I need you to be with me on that before I can move to this next place. Jesus and the Father are one. They have the same essence. He's of the Godhead. He's here in the flesh as a man, living fully as a man while still being fully God, but setting aside his divinity so that he is absolutely dependent on the Holy Spirit and completely obedient to the Father. Sounds like the Christian life, doesn't it? Okay, so it's interesting here that the prophet Isaiah announced that the name of this coming Messiah, thousands of years before Jesus' birth, he said the name of this Messiah would be Emmanuel. Now, do you know what that means in the Hebrew? Somebody tell me. God with us. So the name of Jesus foretold in prophecies that God would be with us. You with me? He's fulfilling that. Since he is God with us, then we should expect that his attitude and his words, his behavior, should give us a perfect picture of the Father. Any argument with that? If he's God with us, then he would certainly represent God with integrity because that's, he carries the same attributes. He's the same DNA. Does the Bible support that view? Well, let's find out. Because I don't want to just make a statement without giving you some scripture to look at. Did Jesus rep the, represent the Father in what he said and did? And um, in his own words, Jesus answered that question on a number of occasions. And he said in John 5, 19, I speak to you timeless truth. Don't you love that? I speak to you timeless truth. The Son is not able to do anything from himself. Or through my own initiative. I have no will of my own. I do not have an agenda. I'm entirely here to serve the Father by the power of the Spirit. And he goes on to say, I only do the works I see the Father doing. For the Son does the same works as the Father. So Jesus came as God and as man 
to do the will of the Father, and he only did what he was told to do. He was completely given to obedience. And a few lines later in verse 30, he reinforces that same message, and he says this. I can do nothing on my own. Here we are again. He's restating this. Obviously, there was some difficulty and some understanding. Except to fulfill the desires of my Father who sent me. He says, I'm here to fulfill the desires of God. That's what I'm here for. I don't know anything else except that I'm here to serve him. Now, if that is true and Jesus represented the Father in all he did and all he said, then his life should dispel any lies we might believe about who God is. Because we only need to look at the life of Jesus and it fully reflects a picture of the Father. Does that make sense so far? I'm just building this so that we can connect the dots. And so who is this? Um, and any, by the way, any lies we might believe about who God is, we can probably nullify or negate those simply by looking at the life of Jesus. Let me give you some myths. Okay? These are things that are based in struggles people have with who God is. And it's pretty consistent throughout every discussion I've ever had with people who are struggling with God and the image of God. These are the same kind of questions, it seems like at some point, we have all had. So in Colossians 1.13, Paul tells us there are two domains, two spiritual factions that are at war with each other over God's creation. One is, uh, he calls, the kingdom of God. And the other is the domain of darkness. So these, these two realms in the spirit that are in incredible warfare over the creation. Do you believe that? It's absolutely the truth. Here's scripture in Colossians 1.13. So speaking of these two spiritual realms... Jesus makes a definitive statement, something that's really important here for us to understand. This is not um, my um, writing. I, I picked this up from Bill Johnson and a couple of other men, but it was uh, an eye-opener for me to see this. He says, in John 10, 10, he defines the activity that's associated with each realm. Each domain has a certain activity, and you can recognize the domain by what's going on. You don't have to be spiritually discerning to recognize when something's good or when something's evil if you just examine what's happening and there's fruit there. So in speaking of this, Jesus says in John 10, there is one camp that tells us, he tells us, and there's a camp called, the, and the perpetrator, the leader of this particular camp is called the thief, the devil, the accuser of the brethren. So we have one camp that's the domain of darkness, and we have another camp that's the kingdom of God. You with me? I'm just plodding along here. I don't want to lose anyone. And the thief comes to do what? To steal, kill, and destroy. What camp would you put those in? Well, that activity is evil, and it's dark, and it goes in the domain of darkness. Right? You get an A-plus on that one. Now, this is the domain of darkness, and everything that falls in the category of steal, steal in Texas, kill and destroy, comes from home. The evil one. It's in that domain. It's totally 
the domain of darkness and only the things that come out of that domain are hurtful and destructive. Every evil, destructive thing that has ever come to pass has its origin in this dark kingdom. You with me? All right. Satan is the author of sin and evil, and regardless of its appearance, it finds its origin in this domain. There's only two, okay? Therefore, we can say with some certainty that if something falls in the realm of darkness, evil, and destruction, and hopelessness, any of those things that are dark and depressing and evil, they don't come from God. Can I get an amen on that? We need to put that to bed. Let me give you another verse here. James tells us, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. What kingdom would that be? This is the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God. He says it comes down to us from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadows. He is consistently the same throughout time. He has not changed his mind from the beginning to the end. He is the same. You with me? Now, Jesus reveals God's kingdom purpose in his mission statement. This is what Jesus says. I came, not like the thief, but I came that they may have joy and have it in abundance. And it says in parentheses, to the full until it overflows in your life. It is the will of God that you would experience joy until your life overflows with that. Every good thing comes from the kingdom of God and from the Father who loves his children. Now, we have a lot of detractors on that who attribute different evil things to God. And I want to say I don't believe that for one minute. Can I just take a stand on that one? Everything that falls in the camp of life and joy and abundance, deliverance and liberty and hope is from the kingdom of heaven. All the fruit of the Spirit is found in the domain of God. Every good thing is an attribute of His that He gives to His children. All of those fruits. Here's another myth that I want to dispel. Myth number two. Jesus had a way of challenging men's perspective on things and beliefs, and he, and he started usually by saying, now you've heard it said, and you know where he's going with that, because what he's saying is that what you've been taught and what you've experienced in religion or in your dysfunctional parenting or by authorities that were abusive, you've heard it said from them, these things, but I, I he says, but I say to you, and then he brings the truth that sets us free from those beliefs that we had that were perpetrated on us by people that have hurt us. You've heard it said this, and you've heard it said that, but I tell you the truth. I say to you. And so, in other words, you've come to believe this, but I want to show you the truth from God's perspective. Jesus still does that with us today. If you've ever been in any ministry like Sozo Ministry or some of the others, where we just absolutely, there's a ministry of the Holy Spirit, often God will come and challenge us, do you really believe that? Do you understand that what you're believing there is a lie, and the fruit of it is this effect in your life? Would you like to be done with that? And if the answer is yes, he says, then be done with that. I'm going to speak the truth to you. Now, embrace this 
and hold on to it until your heart is converted. You understand what I'm saying there? Jesus still corrects man's thinking in regard to the Father. And that's what I'm trying to do tonight. I'm creating a new awareness of a, rea- a new reality. He, uh, il- he demonstrated an ex- the Father's will and illustrated the Father's nature by what he did. For example, let me give you some thoughts here. This is part of that, some of these myths. This one's about healing. And, and we've been through this in our men's group time and time again. Why doesn't God heal? Why doesn't he move in power when we pray? Why doesn't he do this? Why didn't he do that? And yet, every week we have testimonies of things that are happening. They just didn't happen in front of us in the moment in the flesh. So Jesus healed who? Everyone who came to him. That's a fact, period. Jesus healed everyone who came to him, and not only that, he even went to other people that he was directed to by the Father and healed them even when they didn't come to him, and I'm one of those. He came and found me in the sewer and brought me to life. And so the model of Jesus' ministry is the standard in the realm of healing. Can we agree with that? that the ministry of Jesus is the standard that the Father exhibits through His Son is exactly the will of the Father, and Jesus healed everyone who came to Him. Now, just because we don't experience that doesn't change the fact that that's the truth. The truth is that we need to grow up in our maturity and learn how to do what Jesus did. And there's no slam on us for that. There's no judgment on that. We just need to practice and learn how to do this better. Because God is with us. He wants us to continue to do this until we get really good at it and look like his son Jesus. Anybody want to believe that with me? I have to stay there. If I don't, it's a slippery slope. I can find all kinds of reasons why God's not good. I want to find reasons why he is good and hold to those. And my life seems to change when I view him for the better. There's another myth here. This is an interesting story in Matthew 3 where Jesus and his disciples um, enter a storm while they're in a boat. You remember the story? And uh, it says, after he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly, behold, there arose a violent storm on the sea so that the boat was being covered up by the waves, and he was sleeping. No problem. He was totally at peace in his trust in the Father. And they went and awakened him, saying, Lord, rescue and preserve us. We are perishing. And these guys knew what they were talking about. These were fishermen. And this boat was being swamped. And if you know what a swamp boat looks like, this is in a storm like this, they were about to die if something didn't happen. And he said to them, why are you timid and afraid? Timid and afraid. He expected by now that they would do something different, but they were still immature and hadn't learned how to address these issues. So Jesus stands up and does what? Let me read it to you because the words are important here. Oh, you of little faith. And he got up and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great and wonderful calm and a perfect peaceableness. Now what does the story tell us? lesson here is that Jesus stills every life-threatening storm. He's still in the business of rebuking life-threatening 
chaos in our lives. Now we never see we never see him using his authority to create these things to hurt people, do we? Bring calamity or disaster on, on people. So based on our study tonight, I'm, am I right in concluding that we can only determine that the Father feels the same way? That he would not send storms to kill people? And the reason I say that is because people attribute storms and things of that nature as God's judgment. Let me say this. God's judgment is not in this season. God's judgment is reserved for end times. This is the season of God's love and grace. Can you hold on to that? So, by the way, have you ever considered why Jesus rebuked the storm and just instead of telling it to stop? There's a difference in language here. Because it was demonic in nature, and it required the authority of the Spirit. So as soon as he rebuked the storm, it stilled, and he said it became peaceful. This origin was not natural. It was not of God. It was demonic. The forces of Satan needed to be dealt with with authority, just like they do in the storms of your life. When you recognize these things don't come to God to teach you a lesson, that's baloney. God doesn't beat his children. I'm on good ground here. Experientially and scripturally, God is good, and he doesn't abuse his children. Whatever comes to us is from one kingdom or the other. If it's good, we embrace it. It's from the Father. And if it's dark and it's painful and scary, guess where it came from? It didn't come from your Father. Thank you very much. I needed to put a, a, a period there at the end of that sentence. Let me give you another myth, and then I'll be done blowing and going here. This is, this is another um, subject we need to address. Here's another example of the Father's heart being revealed by the life of Jesus. This is in Luke 9. And it says, uh, so he sent messengers ahead of him, his envoys, to a village. And the village was uh, uh, Samaritans. They weren't Jewish. Jesus was passing through and he needed a place to stay for the night because he's on his way to Jerusalem. With me? So he sent some people on ahead to get a room. And uh, as they approached the village, they were turned away. The Samaritans didn't want them staying there because they were on their way to Jerusalem to worship. And they were, they were so opposed to that because they had a different belief system in their, in their worship. And they wouldn't have anything to do with anyone who worshipped in Jerusalem. They would not allow Jesus to enter, for he was on his way to worship in Jerusalem. Now when the disciples, uh, James and John, realized what was happening, they came to Jesus and said, Lord, if you wanted to, you could command fire to fall on these people and just kill them all. You know, if you want to, we can do that. And, um, and, and he and said, uh, just like Elijah did, we can destroy all these wicked people. So they're coming from an Old Testament mentality of a picture of God who was wrathful and destroyed people. And I'm not going there. I'm going to stay in the New Testament with the New Covenant. This is the one we live in. This is the one I embrace. Jesus rebuked them. What does that mean? Oh boy. And he said he did it severely. Now, I wouldn't want Jesus rebuking me severely. 
Because this is a big deal to him because it misrepresents the Father. He says, don't you realize what comes from your hearts when you say that? For the Son of Man did not come to destroy life, but to bring life to the earth. It never occurred to him that he would bring destruction on people who hated him. In fact, he would hang from a cross and say, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Is that consistent? You see, the Lord corrects James and John severely when they assume to know God through an Old Testament picture that they've misinterpreted, just like we do. If you want to know what God's like, look at the life of Jesus. He is the perfect representation of the Father. You need go no further. Whatever he said is what the Father was saying. Get a hold of that and embrace that to your heart. According to Scripture, the Father's heart is revealed in the life of Jesus, and he set out on a mission that men would receive grace and be saved, not that they would receive judgment and die. Is that clear? Okay, one more example. You give me a minute, I'm going to do one more. That's myth number five. <laughs> There's a familiar story of deliverance found in Mark 7. And I find this really interesting because... Um, this is, um, this is not Jesus interacting with the Jews. He says he set out from there to go into a non-Jewish region of Tyre. He intended to slip into a household unnoticed because people were following him everywhere he went. He couldn't even stop for food or get sleep. And so he was trying to sneak into this house, and guess what? It just didn't work. When you're Jesus, people are looking for you. <laughs> and he says here, People found out he was there, but when a woman whose daughter had a demon spirit heard he was there, she came and threw herself down at his feet. Remember this. That gets his attention when you throw yourself down at Jesus' feet. He listens and he notices you and he stops. She was not Jewish. She was not part of his mission. She was not part of his agenda, but she threw herself in... in incredible need of mercy. She threw herself on the mercy of God. But she was a foreigner born in a part of Syria known as Phoenicia. She begged him repeatedly. <laughs> she was knocking on the door, wasn't she? Repeatedly she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And finally Jesus listened to all this and he said, um, first let my children be fed and satisfied, for it isn't fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. He says, my agenda, I'm here to do the Father's will. The Father's will is to t take care of the children of Israel. And you understand they have to be first and foremost in what I'm doing because I only do what the Father's doing. And she answered him, how true that is, Lord. How true it is. I absolutely acknowledge that. Nevertheless, <laughs> she said, even puppies under the family table are allowed to eat the little children's crumbs. She relegated herself and humbled herself and said, I understand that's true, but here I am, and you're all I've got. You're all I've got. And Jesus said to her, guess what? <laughs> the father's agenda just changed. <laughs> he says, that's a great reply. Now, because you said this, you may go. And the demon has permanently left your daughter. And when she returned home, she found her daughter resting quietly on the couch, completely set free from the demon. Now, do you, Jesus only did what the Father was doing. If we 
Confirm that. So what did he do in that moment? His compassion overwhelmed his agenda. He said, man, I got time for you, little girl. How many times has he done it for us? Deliverance comes to all who ask. Regardless of their place in life, their history, or their condition. And we're proof of that, aren't we? If Jesus is moved by faith and compassion, then it follows that the Father must be moved as well. Or Jesus wouldn't be saying and doing the things he did. Because he said, I only do what the Father's doing. And his heart's breaking for this little girl. So, I ask you, did we answer the questions adequately for you? Have we somewhat settled the fact that Jesus represented the Father and everything he did was good? Does Jesus accurately represent the Father? Absolutely, with complete integrity. In every way, he is perfectly representing the Father. If so, what has that information done? And has it changed your way of seeing the Father in light of the fact that you have seen him in Jesus? Has it changed your thinking ever so slightly that God might be more than you thought? Is there a possibility? So how do you see him tonight? The Father is inviting us into a process of change. He's doing this by highlighting this message, and, and I'll pick this up next month. I'm going to teach on taste and see that God is good from Psalm 34. I'm going to unpack that for you because it's an incredible invitation with a promise, and I want you to get it because God's saying, come closer. I'm not scary, and I love you. And he's holding his hand out to us. Now I ask you, who would now take that hand would you be willing to take his hand and let him draw you to him? He's safe. He's not all these things people have characterized him to be. We can see clearly in the life of Jesus, he was perfectly good. God's converting our hearts and what we believe. He's changing our perspective on things so we can begin to align ourselves with him and agree with him so that blessing comes into our lives. The more we stand under the fountain, the wetter we get. And he's invited, step over here and let me pour myself out on you. You get it? It's okay. He's a good dad. Thinking back to my men's group... I think this alone is why so many of these men have begun to see the Father differently. Simply because he is related to them in the midst of their struggle and not cast them aside and judge them. He's called them to himself with grace and love and mercy. You agree? Let me pray for you. Because we want to submit ourselves to the Father. He's calling us to say yes to something. You hear that? There's something sweet and special about this. He's a good father. And he's saying, come closer, child. And so I don't know about you. Can I pray that over you? Is that okay? So, Father, we just stand here and we're amazed at this information. We are overwhelmed by it. We haven't processed it fully. because still things in our hearts that need to be challenged. But we know that your spirit is fully capable of doing that. And we ask you to come and examine us and see what things in our hearts might be offensive. And come then 
and ask those questions, Lord. Tell us that we've surely heard a lie and that you have the truth and then change our hearts by that message. I pray now that the power of God, the, the love of the Father, would come by his Spirit and embrace you right now. That you'd feel the tenderness of his touch and you'd be moved to respond to him and call him Father. So, Father, I just bless these people here tonight. Thank you, Lord, that they were so open to you and they love you so much. And the ones of us, Lord, who want to but aren't, help us to do that. We, we um, position ourselves to receive your mercy and love. We stand under the fount of your grace and we thank you for everything you've done in our lives and we say that you are good in Jesus' name. Amen.